This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In With Chris Hayes, BuzzFeed Central Presents, The Black Agenda Report, Brave New Films, This Week in Blackness, The Young Turks, and a segment of Best of the Left activism. And stay tuned in to the end of the episode to hear the surprising story of how I accidentally stole from a woman of color and then hear me correct the record. It turns out that one of the New York Times' most famous and widely read columnists has a confession to make. In a shocking expose, conservative David Brooks cops to having smoked weed with high school buddies before aging out of the drug. For a little while in my teenage years, my friends and I smoked marijuana, he writes. It was fun. I have some fond memories of us all being silly together. I think those moments of uninhibited frolic deepened our friendships. But then, Brooks writes, he and his friends moved away from it because, well, to hear Brooks tell it, Smoking pot made you a loser. And instead, he and his homies, quote, graduated to more satisfying pleasures like love and literature. Brooks concludes that in legalizing marijuana, the citizens of Colorado are nurturing a moral ecology in which it is a bit harder to be the sort of person most of us want to be. Well, the one kind of person most people don't want to be is a person caught in the criminal justice system. And while I'm aware that other people's drug stories are generally about as interesting as hearing them recount the minutia of their dreams, the Brooks column has occasioned a fruitful round of discussion of the obvious fact that lots and lots and lots of people have and do smoke pot who are not people we consider criminals. So let me add my own story to the mix, which I think is illustrative. In the summer of 2000, as a 21-year-old college student, my then-girlfriend, now wife, and I thought it would be fascinating from a kind of sociological perspective to check out the 2000 Republican National Convention in Philadelphia. My father-in-law is a journalist and had some credentials, and so we went down there to meet up with him. Fresh off the Amtrak, we headed to the first Union Center, and as we passed through the first security checkpoint, and I put my overnight bag through an x-ray machine, I remembered to my horror, that I had left a bag of about $30 worth of weed in there. It was inside a case for my glasses. Why was I walking around with $30 of pot in my eyeglass case? I don't know. I forgot it was there. I was 21. These things happen. But I breathed a sigh of relief as the bag passed through without notice, and as we skated through another checkpoint, I thought, well, that was a close call. But then we reached the final checkpoint, and I quickly realized that at this station, every single bag was being searched. I put my bag down and watched with mounting dread and nausea as a Philadelphia police officer, not some rent-a-cop, went through one compartment and then a second and finally a third where he withdrew my eyeglass case. He shook it, felt there was something inside, then opened it and his head jerked back in surprise and he whirled around holding his back to me and inspected the offending substance. He called over two other cops, and the three of them stood with their backs to us, conferring for what felt like a very, very long time. I thought about running, but then realized this was the most heavily policed acre of land in the entire United States at that moment. I told Kate what was happening, and then, out of a sense of mounting panic and impotence, I ran over my father-in-law and blurted out, I I had some weed in my bag, and I think the cops just found it. My father-in-law was surprised. Uh, what? Why? And just as we were walking back towards the cops, the principal one, the one who found the weed, turned around, took the overnight bag, and put it down, and looked at me. I reached out my hand to claim it, figuring this would be the point he would slap cuffs on me and I'd be under arrest. And to my shock, he just looked at me impassively. And I looked back at him, and I picked up my bag with the eyeglass case and weed inside, and headed into the convention center. 
My father-in-law shook his head in amazement at both my stupidity and my luck. I've rerun that incident a countless times since, and while I have no earthly idea why the cop not only didn't arrest me, but also decided to give me my weed back, the best case seems to be that he looked at me and figured I could have been some senator's son, and that arresting me was going to possibly cause a whole bunch of headaches that he did not need on a night when he was mostly there to make sure no one was bringing weapons or explosives into that building. And I can tell you as sure as I am sitting here before you that if I was a black kid with cornrows instead of a white kid with glasses, my ass would have been in the back of a squad car faster than you can say George W. Bush. So yeah, David Brooks, smoking weed with your buddies had no consequences for you and your crew. But that's the entire point. It has very real consequences for lots of people. Black people and white people use marijuana at roughly the same rates, and yet black people are nearly four times as likely to be arrested for marijuana possession. So while thousands of junior David Brookses do bong hits in dorm rooms, there are thousands of kids on the streets of the south sides of Chicago and Harlem and Compton getting their first charge on a marijuana possession, getting entered into the system with a record and a court date, being marked early as a certain kind of person. It's just one in a number of insidious ways our laws are used to sort our society, pushing some people from certain backgrounds into one category and the David Brookses and hell Chris Hayes of the world into the other. You, you go to college, you, you go to court. I'm pretty damn lucky I did not get arrested that night. My privilege kept me free. I wish Brooks realizes how lucky he was too. I never thought my life could be anything but catastrophe. But suddenly I begin to see a bit of good luck for me. Cause I've got a golden ticket. I've got a golden twinkle in my eye I never had a chance to shine Never a happy song to sing But suddenly half the world is mine What an amazing thing Cause I've got a golden ticket It's ours, Charlie I've got a golden sun up in the sky I consider myself an artist, but I'm a teacher. And that's what I enjoy the most. I learned more from him than I learned from any other art teacher, basically, in his high school. He's one of those teachers I will definitely remember because he really helped me out through a lot. He was the best teacher that we ever had in art. So I honestly think he would just jump in front of a bullet for us. Like, he loved us for real. I like to be outside, to draw with chalk, display my work in front of my building. Thank you, thank you. I love your art. It brings joy to me. You like this one? It's one of my favorite ones. What do you say, Mommy? Thank you. You're welcome. I hope you enjoy it. The day he got arrested, there was art on the floor here. I was 
outside smoking a cigarette and admiring my work. And as usually, usually just wave to me and that's it. And then you came here smoking your cigarette. You decided to walk to the corner. I flicked my cigarette. That's when I heard the loud screeching sound of a car turn around. I'm thinking there's an accident, but it wasn't. It was the officers. And they came over to you? He had grabbed my arm and literally twisted it, pushed me against this fence. He pulled me off the fence. That's when I was falling over to the ground. He's actually forcing his hand, using foul language. I'm saying to myself, what, boy, they don't know. He just came out the house. He runs over to this corner and grabs something from this corner. He was telling me the reason why I'm getting arrested was because I had a marijuana cigarette. And I kept on telling him, no, I was not smoking marijuana. I was smoking a cigarette. I go to school the following day. I get a letter in my mailbox stating that I no longer am I supposed to be teaching in my class. Within 24 hours, the Department of Education was able to suspend Mr. Wilmore and issue this letter saying that he was ineligible to be working in his school. There are thousands of employees who have been licensed or employed through a city or state agency. When those people get arrested, they are taken to the precinct by the officers and they are fingerprinted. And their fingerprints are sent to a criminal justice repository in Albany. That agency in Albany, they will send the person's employer information about the arrest charge literally within hours. In some cases, people are immediately suspended or terminated because of just arrest charges. They have a list of serious misconduct. It particularly describes possession of marijuana as serious misconduct, despite the fact that the legislature does not even view that as a crime. It's very hard to see how possession of marijuana off school property should be on the same list as sexual abuse of a student or felony possession of a firearm. They took, they took my life. They took what I love to do the most, working with kids. When I found out brother wasn't coming back, I was actually pretty upset. We all loved him, all the kids loved him. Yeah, and when someone came to replace him, people were like sad. I wish he would come back. He was Al Baker. Al Baker was his life, <laughs> seriously. He loved, he loved it. Ella Baker was the reason that I woke up and now, I can only wish that uh, uh, I can go back. Police officers are charging our clients for possessing marijuana when our clients never possessed marijuana at all, when the marijuana was found on the ground, like Mr. Wilmore's case. But the most common scenario that we see is when police officers take the marijuana out of their pocket. The police are then charging our clients with misdemeanor marijuana possession charges. And in New York, possessing small amounts of marijuana is not a crime. You can only be charged if you are possessing the marijuana in public view. But it only came into public view after the police search. And so the police were in, in effect creating crime where there was none. Uh, they were manufacturing misdemeanor charges. These are the cases that are clogging our court system. A marijuana misdemeanor is supposed to be brought to trial within 60 days, but 60 days can become 600 days. The prosecution will say that they're not ready to go forward with the trial. 
our clients are asked to come back to court over and over and over again without any realistic hope of ever actually having their day in court. In Mr. Wilmore's case, he had to endure 21 months waiting for his criminal case to be finally disposed of and waiting for his employment disciplinary proceedings to be disposed of, all because of something that really should not have been in the criminal justice system to begin with. to move to the district office. I'm no longer teaching, not having the opportunity of seeing the Yellow Baker students. They're charging me, even though they never um, frisked me, took anything out of my body or out of my pocket, of possession of marijuana. Or what he had found on the ground exactly. in the Bronx. He could have picked up anything exactly. and put that on you. lab report from the substance that he picked off the ground mm -hmm. comes back as marijuana but then like the crazy thing is it's like 0 0.234 grams we're talking about all of the resources from the system that are going into the prosecution of you like let's really just think about this I'm thinking about it. percentage of cases are dismissed. They're dismissed because the officer made a bad arrest and the district attorney decides not to bring the case, or they're dismissed because the judge sees that it was a bad stop or a bad search. I hear those beautiful words, uh, my case is now going to be closed. I'm ready to call everybody up and tell them, listen, I'm coming back. I get a letter stating that further actions are going to be taken. I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, how is this possible? I, 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 my case is closed. Everything is done. The judge told me. So the Department of Education is still saying that he possessed marijuana in a public place and that he engaged in criminal conduct. Again, these criminal charges have been dismissed and sealed. They're also saying, well, you didn't notify us of this arrest that we told you we were notified of. And so you must be punished. He finally is forced to never work again at the school that he had actually been a founding member of. Your life is supposed to go back to what it was before that case ever began. You should be back in that classroom. Alberto was never found guilty of anything. Yet, per the DOE, he's sentenced. He lost his life's work as a result of an arrest. Not even a conviction, just an arrest. Frontline police officers are expected to make a certain number of arrests. Marijuana arrests, I think, are the easiest way to satisfy uh, those demands. An officer can make hundreds of arrests over their career and every single one of them could end in a dismissal and that officer will never be disciplined. It's difficult to convince people that something as silly as a marijuana arrest can result in the loss of a job, deportation, eviction. It's tough to convince people that that's actually happening to people but we see it here every single day. I still have hope to um 
come back to Alan Baker, and it's hard for me to even phantom the thought that I'm going to speak to a child and tell them I'm not there for you anymore. President Obama's spin doctors have been working overtime, revising his administration's historical record on criminal justice issues. On the most fundamental level, the Obama team can fairly be described as the most anti-civil liberties U.S. regime in modern times, having substantially destroyed the principle of due process of law through its preventive detention legislation and unprecedented abuse of World War I-era espionage laws. The Obama Justice Department takes the fascist-inspired position that Americans have no inherent constitutional right to access to the courts. Due process, in their minds, consists of whatever process the government finds convenient. Obama's legacy to the nation is the shrunken husk of a constitution. However, in the wake of widespread black outrage at the Trayvon Martin verdict, the administration found it politically advantageous to dress up as criminal justice reformers. Obama and his attorney general mouthed words of sympathy for at least some of the millions locked away in the mostly black and brown gulag, especially nonviolent drug offenders. In truth, the Obama White House is behind the curve on criminal justice issues. Significant numbers of Republicans and lots of corporate think tanks have for some time favored scaling back the U.S. prison system, if only because it's so expensive. But the Obama team has no intention of limiting the scope and powers of the incarceration state, how could anyone believe that an administration that spies on virtually all of its citizens would ever consider seriously scaling back its institutional capacity to imprison an unlimited number of people? Therefore, Obama puts forward only cosmetic and provisional proposals, such as selective clemencies and commutations for a small number of inmates, but nothing that strikes at the institutional heart of the system. It is all sham and smoke, cynicism and hypocrisy. As both Margaret Kimberly and Bruce Dixon have reported in these pages, the Obama administration has fought in the courts to keep in prison about 5,000 inmates convicted under the old 100-to-1 crack-versus-powder-cocaine laws. 
Attorney General Eric Holder's lawyers argued against making the new 18-to-1 law retroactive, thus revealing the administration's hardcore mass incarceration mentality. While thousands of mostly black inmates languished unnecessarily in prison, a bipartisan group of lawmakers pressed forward with the Smarter Sentencing Act of 2014, which has just passed major hurdles in the Senate. In addition to making reduced crack cocaine sentences retroactive, the bill would get rid of some mandatory minimum sentences, although the devil is in the details. The legislation has very broad support, just as did the crack cocaine penalties rollback bill, and is part of a growing consensus among U.S. ruling circles that the prison system is too large. Even the right-wing Heritage Foundation has offered a qualified endorsement. The truth is, the Obama administration has exerted no real leadership in this regard, but instead has placed legal roadblocks in the way of release for thousands of people. The president didn't even bother to mention U.S. prisons or the Smarter Sentencing Act in his State of the Union address. Yet, a number of publications, such as the New York Law Journal, erroneously credit Obama as a prison reformer, which is an absolute fiction. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to 1 out of 17. Now, here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are 1 out of 3. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated, but one thing is clear. There's a racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of America's drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prison and federal prison. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparities in America's war on drugs are one big reason that one of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime.
One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Today would have been the 19th birthday of Trayvon Martin, had he not been shot and killed just weeks after his 17th birthday. Martin's mother, Sabrina Fulton, tweeted this photo, celebrating and mourning her son. His father, Tracy Martin, gave an interview with Vibe magazine about life after his son's death. And after the folks at Color Lines created the hashtag 19 for Trayvon, people have been tweeting about what they were doing at age 19 and what they wish Trayvon Martin were alive to do as well. Trayvon Martin's would-be birthday comes just as the murder trial of Michael Dunn gets underway in Florida. Dunn allegedly opened fire into an SUV in a convenience store parking lot following a dispute over loud music coming from the car, killing 17-year-old Jordan Davis. Dunn has said he acted in self-defense. What's so painful about the Trayvon Martin case and the reason why the Michael Dunn trial is getting so much attention is not just because of the tragic loss of these two individual teenagers, but because of the nagging suspicion that if the roles had been reversed, justice might look very different. Because we as a society simply do not trust that the motto inscribed at the threshold of the Supreme Court, equal justice under law, is anything more than a sick, twisted joke. We just accept and understand that if you're a Wall Street banker, you'll get treated one way, and if you're a black kid in Florida, you'll get treated another. Well, Noam Scheiber just wrote a piece for the New Republic arguing that no, we should not accept that this is the way the system works. He has a radical and provocative solution for how to change it, and he joins me now. He's senior editor at the New Republic. All right, Noam. Um, first of all, let's start on this premise that this thing that I think we all intuitively know, like you, like a rich kid gets picked up for something, they hire a fancy defense attorney, they've got a better chance of getting off than someone who happens to have a public defender who's overworked. Like that's actually the way justice in this country really does work. Yeah, that's the question. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, if you look at the uh, case that I write about in the piece, um, a teenager named Ethan Couch down in Texas um, who. Um, you know, took his father's pickup truck, killed uh, four people while driving drunk, and hired two very fancy uh, defense attorneys. And they uh, hired an expert witness uh, who came up with this famous uh, or notorious affluenza defense. And uh, he basically did it did no time. He got sentenced to 10 years probation. Um, I read about another case uh, about 10 years earlier in Texas, uh, similar situation. Working class kid uh, stole a pickup truck, was drunk, killed somebody else. Um, it, very, you know, similar circumstances. Same judge sends him to 20 years. Um, so, and that's uh, a particular high definition of something that is structural throughout the system. I mean, that's the, that. The, let me just show this number: average numbers of clients served by private attorneys, 429; by legal aid attorneys, 6,415. All right. So we know that this system is. It looks a lot like how much justice you can buy. So mm -hmm. what is the solution? 
Well, the solution is twofold. I mean, one is you've got to massively subsidize legal services for people who are poor, and, and not just poor. Uh, I mean, this is a problem for working class people, for middle class people. Um, so we've, you know, if if we think that, um, you know, that justice should not uh, be determined by the amount of money that you have to pay for it, we've got to help people pay for it. But the flip side of that is um, we've also got to limit the amount of money that, that the very wealthy can spend on justice. Uh, and the reason for that is is very simple. Um, it is not, unlike say education or healthcare, um, it is not enough to just have an adequate level, even if that adequate level is, is very high. Um, the reason is, uh, if Bill Gates can spend you know, millions of dollars more in his defense than I can, um, and then that, and that is by definition not uh, equal protection under the law, right? And right. If, if the ideal is equal protection, um, it, adequacy or a sufficient level of resources is not enough. We've all have to have, to have the exact same resources. That, that, okay, that, but that, let's just say, let's put this in the political context. You were saying limiting the amount of money rich people can spend on legal representation, whether that's criminal representation, civil representation, like you get to spend X amount, you can't spend any more. That to the ears of the median voter, to the ears of a, you know, your average uh, Beltway think tank denizen, that is a deeply radical idea. That is a very blunt instrument egalitarian idea you're advocating for. Are you crazy? Are you a socialist? Uh, no, no, no. In fact, as I said, in, in healthcare, in education, I think that the government should provide a very high minimum level of services. But if Bill Gates wants to spend millions of dollars more on his healthcare or millions of dollars more on education for his kids, that's fine with me. It doesn't make me less healthy. It doesn't make my kids less educated. But if he can spend millions of dollars more on legal services than I can, say we're both indicted for a crime, um, he can effectively buy more justice. Right. And that, that, um, that diminishes my status. Is this is an, it divin or, diminishes my equal protection. Or rights. even to sharpen this, right? I mean, let's let's talk about this. If you sue Bill Gates, right? Or let's sure. say, or if you're a coal worker who sues a coal company, or no let's pressure. say the person who drinks some water in West Virginia, who can just a sue, crazy example. Yeah, yeah, just a crazy example who sues the company that managed to leak this chemical into the water supply, right? In that sense of imbalance, right? In those places in which we have imbalance, there's some deep sense in which our commitment to equality under law is. Just just being shredded by the fact that we just tolerate massively unequal amounts of resources to pour into people's people's legal representation. No question. I mean, this is not hypothetical at all. The rate at which coal miners win claims for black lung, I think there, there are several thousand claims filed each year. The rate at which they win is, is under 15%. And, and these are not people who are inventing black lung, you know, right. fictitious black lung conditions. Um, you said, you're right. In criminal cases, we decide what the accused should be able to spend to defend themselves against a given charge. Securities fraud, grand theft, manslaughter. No one can spend more, even if she has the money. And those who can't afford the limit would receive a subsidy for the full amount beyond what they would Spent, would have spent on their own. Civil cases, we decide what the plaintiff should be able to spend to pursue an award with a particular amount, pursue a particular kind of claim, what the defendant should be able to spend in response. The same subsidies would apply. You know, the best thing about this piece is, even I think if you don't agree with the solution, making it be not just part of the landscape, that we just accept the fact that we have a deeply unequal justice system and deeply unequal access to justice. Really important contribution. No Shriver from the New Republic. Thanks for writing it. Thanks for coming on. They're like the brothers in the poor house who can't afford more house. Politician nervous is the only free service they provide. They want to go inside. There's a high man waiting for it. A deal we can score you on a bed for a night or two. Or three or four months. They say they locking us up in a cell to protect us from ourselves. It smells like they got enough.
another plan in storehouse, or should I say warehouse full of niggas and other misfits that couldn't turn tricks in the courthouse. But it's a justice courthouse, and it's a crime. So you might have heard about the verdict from the Michael Dunn trial. Dunn was accused of murdering 17-year-old Jordan Davis because he refused to cut his music down. Because that's a completely rational reason to get into an argument and start shooting at somebody. Dunn was found guilty for four of the charges brought against him, but not for the murder of Jordan Davis. Yeah, because he pulled a gun and shot at four kids in a car. Obviously attempted murder! But for the kid he actually killed, I don't know, I don't know about that one. That one's a little iffy. Now it can be argued, and many have, that they shouldn't have gone for first degree murder, and that if it had been a lesser charge, then he might have been convicted. This was obviously a failure of the prosecution. And you know what? When they take that into consideration, um, I still don't give a You can make all the arguments you want, but you know what? In the end, there's still a dead black kid. Yeah, Dunn might be going to jail, possibly for decades, but you know what? He didn't go to prison for killing the dead black kid. Listen, Elon, you should just be happy he's going to jail, okay? Happy that he's going to jail? Of course he should go to jail. That's not what, I shouldn't be happy about that. I'd be happy if we found out that Dunn had a secret DeLorean and a flux capacitor so that we can go back in time and stop the dead kid from being dead. But him going to jail doesn't make me happy. You know why? Still a dead black kid. But for those of us looking for justice, him being found guilty of the murder of the kid he murdered might have been a start. Do you know what a hung jury on the murder of an unarmed black kid signifies to a lot of folks? Because let's be honest, Jordan Davis didn't die because his music was too loud. Jordan Davis was murdered because he defied a white man. There's a dead black 17 year old whose murder has to be retried because his murderer might have been afraid of him. And if that's the case, then maybe it was justified because you know, the Negroes, they are kind of scary. I mean, how screwed up is that? Our American citizenship as blacks is predicated on the safety felt by whites. And all of that, all of our rights can be stripped with one word. Scared. Elon, you're being racist, okay? Just quit it. Stop playing the race card. It's funny because some call it the race card when I just call it my life. So you can continue to call me racist, a race baiter, a race hustler, and remain silent as members of my community continue to be gunned down. Because if people perceive a threat, then obviously they should be allowed to shoot you. So what if their perceptions are colored through hundreds of years of stereotypes and misinformation? No, you should be able to shoot us. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I don't hear you talk about black-on-black -black crime. If someone black shot somebody, you wouldn't even care. Stop. Fall back. That's a false narrative. Black-on-black -black crime exists the same way white-on-white -white crime exists, okay? People commit crimes against the people that they're around, okay? So black people around black folks probably will commit black-on-black -black crimes, same as white people around white folks will commit white-on-white -white crimes, okay? Fall back. Secondly, do you think that the communities of color aren't constantly talking about violence in their communities? I grew up in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, New York. Every church, community center, or school had some sort of summit or meeting discussing violence in the neighborhood, trying to come up with community programs that would make sure that people were safe in their areas. And you want to talk about that we don't care about black-on-black -black crime or, or, or what's happening in our communities? It's completely an utter Okay? And stop throwing it out there because you know why? You sound like an idiot. And don't bring up Detroit or Chicago as some sort of gotcha cookie because you know what? Your argument is flawed.
You want to know why people cry out because of Trayvon Martin, Renisha McBride, Jordan Davis? You want to know why? It's because it echoes an all too familiar sentiment that we've been dealing with for generations, okay? People being afraid just because of what they perceive because of our skin color. I'm American with all the American rights as long as I'm not too American while wearing a hoodie, perhaps while playing rap music too loud, or in your neighborhood too late at night. And people wonder why we identify as black first and American whenever. My name is Elon James White, and you are watching This Week in Blackness. So from now on, whenever you hear these horns, just know, you are now entering the blackness. Collard brains, corn bread, and the catfish. Malcolm X and Dr. King Michael Dunn is the guy who shot a 17-year-old black kid because he didn't like his, quote, thug music. Uh, he pretended later that he thought he might have seen a weapon in the car as they were playing the music. There was actually four people in the car. It's just the 17-year-old driver is the one who got killed. Um, uh, but he told his fiance at the time that, he, in fact, he had not seen any weapons. So he got convicted on three counts of second attempt, uh, sec attempted second-degree murder, I should say, and also firing into a, a car. But he did not con get convicted on the actual murder charge. It was a mistrial, and it looks like the prosecutors will try him again. Now, again, he was not acquitted either. Be clear about that. So if you're unsure about Michael Dunn and what kind of guy he is, well, it's interesting. CNN has gotten a hold of some tapes where, uh, in prison, he's talking to his fiancée, Rhonda Royer, the same person who explained that he, at the time he knew that the kids did not have a weapon and fired into their car, killing one of them anyway. Let's listen to what he says on the tapes. And by the way, at the very end there, what you're going to hear is him referring to uh, living by himself in a cell rather than what he thinks is a worse possibility. But first, he starts talking about how he's a victim. I mean, I, I, I don't know uh, how, how I'm supposed to put it. It's like, they attacked me. I, I'm the victim. Right. I'm the victor, but I was the victim, too. I guess it'd be better than being in a room with them animals. So at the end there, saying staying in his own cell is better than living with them animals. And he's telling his fiance that he's the effing victim here. Now remember... There was no weapon at all in the car, nor did he think there was a weapon, according to what he told his fiancée at the time. He was victimized by their loud music, so he felt justified in murdering them. But in his mind, he's the victim. And by the way, just for adding insult to injury, I'm also the victor, he said. But then went on with his victim mentality. Poor me, poor me. I was victimized by a tiny little bit of music there, and he talked back to me. How dare that young boy talk back to me, right? I was the victim. You see that? These conservatives that always walk around like tough guys, like, oh, the liberals with their victim mentality, always asking for something, right? No, 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 that's projection. Because in their minds, they're always victimized. Oh, no, poor me. A black kid talked back to me. He said music was too loud. <laughs> well, I'm not a real man. I can't take him on, right? So what am I going to do? I'm going to pu pull out my fake, you know what, so I can murder him in cold blood without giving him any chance to fight back at all. 
Because in his mind, he's always the victim. A poor little Michael Dunn, what could he do? And then that, like I said, that little part about how he's the victor. What did you win, asshole? What did you win? You think that's winning? Firing all those bullets into a car and killing that 17 year old kid? You think that's winning? What did you win? If you still support Michael Dunn, you're a bad person. I mean, that's kind of a weird thing to say, right? I mean, like, we're supposed to be allowed to disagree on things. Of course, you don't disagree on political issues. Of course, we can do that, right? You believe in supply side economics? Okay, that's weird to me, but that's a fair debate. If you think Michael Dunn's the good guy here, based on the overwhelming evidence of what Michael Dunn has said and done, victims, I'm sorry, witnesses on the scene said that uh, right before he shot, he said, you can't talk back to me. And then he shot the kid and murdered him for talking back to him. If you think Michael Dunn is the victim and you think he's the good guy, there's something wrong with you. You're a bad person, man. And you're also possibly dangerous because you think that you can murder people if they talk back to you. You know who thinks that? A thug thinks that, right? If they play their music a little too much or too loud or they inconvenience you a little bit, you think you could take out a gun and shoot them and you think that's winning? You're a terrible human being. If you don't like that, that's a sad day for you because that's who you are. You're an ugly, ugly person if you're on Michael Dunn's side. Tuesday, torture animals, cut off small birds' wings, watch them as they bleed to death, then they don't sing. Wednesdays, I defecate on the priest's front door, and if the priest, he does complain, I just do it some more. And Thursdays, I molotov the local orphanage home. I love those little orphans, char them to the bone. So for those of you who um, who might have been hiding under a rock, uh, the trial for Michael Dunn, the murderer of Jordan Davis, uh, w- actually came to a, uh, a a conclusion this weekend. Um, Michael Dunn was uh, was be- was basically being charged, uh, I think, on five different accounts, uh, like uh, I think three attempted murders and one a first degree murder of Jordan Davis. And uh, he was found guilty of, of the attempted murder of the people in the car, that there were three people in the car with Jordan Davis, and he was uh, found a, uh, guilty of attempted murder, but was not found guilty for the actual murder of Jordan Davis. This might have upset some people. And when I say some people, I'm going to say, I'm one of those people. Monica? Yes. Were you amused by this? I was not amused, nor was I surprised. Surprise is a completely different argument. Like I think I, I was. Di- I was not. Di- the prosecution does not do well in cases like this. So the fact we get a Florida's prosecution, yes. specifically Angela Corey. Yes, they do not do well in cases like this because they don't want to bring in actual racism. So the fact that they didn't do that, and. There isn't even an argument about she should have she overcharged because you could have actually got him for any a number uh, first degree second degree or manslaughter they had a choice so that isn't even an overcharging isn't even an issue but the fact that well I mean they they argue it is, it is an issue because it's simply, not uh, they because they got the attempted murder uh, but there was uh, they went for 
uh, first, first degree, degree. Uh, on Jordan Davis, and that was where the trial, because uh, that's what happened. It, was, it ended up becoming, he wasn't found innocent or not guilty. It was a mistrial. They could not right. come to a decision on the murder of right. Jordan Davis. But in the jury instructions, they were given the option of, if you don't have first degree, you could go second or manslaughter. Mm -hmm. So they had that option. They just didn't do it. And it seems like it's because of a lack of, I'm trying to think of a word, because the prosecution didn't do what they could for whatever reason. Now, the other three or other four charges, they could, it was in my head, it seemed easier because there are bullet holes in a car. Multiple. Multiple. So that is easier visibly especially when stand your ground was not supposed to be put into this trial, but all the time the defense kept saying stand and ground and defending and scared. So well, here's, that's, that, that's just my, so the fact that they didn't get the first one, if they redid their strategy, they may be able to get it. If not, if they use the same colorblind president's black, theory that they've been using on this in the Zimmerman trial, they're going to have the same result for the next one. Uh, I found myself becoming really, really annoyed uh, overall because people kept uh, like trying to derail and make it about different things. And I, I feel as if they, there was a bottom line to this that a lot of people were missing and it was driving me nuts. Um, and, and what was that bottom line? The bottom line is that murdering a black kid is kind of okay. And the reason why it's okay, as long as you can make the argument he's scary, or she's scary, or that you were scared. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what the kid did. It doesn't matter what the kid uh, 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 looks like. It doesn't matter any of those things. If you're scared, all of a sudden, you have the right to kill a kid. And, and, and you have to also take into consideration that these uh, images of kids and the ideas that people have around our children is because of hundreds of years of bullshit and and stereotypes and 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 the news media uh, carrying uh, stories, basically scaring the hell out of everyone around. And when they describe our children, like this is like the idea of black of blacks being terrifying has been something that they've been using for decades. I mean, that's why they banned cocaine because you can't have the Negroes on cocaine. They'll go, go cocaine. They'll go rape your white women. I mean, that's that's the fundamental issue with Stand Your Ground, is that if someone feels threatened in any way, and if you have pervasive racism, and you have the other person on the other end of this meeting is dead, I mean, how, how can it come out any other way? It's because the, the, uh, the, the victim was, became the person who had to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that's what irritates people, because that's the guy that's dead. So now he has to defend everything he's ever done all his life, which is only 17 years, over this guy who's really literally too big to be scared of anybody. Hmm. He was pretty big. And that's, and that's, I guess, what is the thing that keeps, I guess, pushing my buttons. And so when they're like, well, the prosecution should have uh, uh, done it differently, I'm like, you know what? To me, all of this is semantics and shenanigans, the trial. Because the kid's dead, and they're making arguments, and they're allowed to make an argument that if the kid's scary, then they can kill him. And so, like, he's like, oh, we should have went for a second degree. Like, oh. kid's still dead, and this dude 
was it was made that argument and, and it's and 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 people have to sit there and listen to him just uh, just so scared and the thugs and the gangsters and all that type of stuff and it's like really really sir just run and scare each place we go so You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stand against shoot first laws. So it turns out that when you weave white supremacy into the foundation of a nation, not even a civil war and a constitutional amendment can fundamentally remake thought, community, or the justice system. There is no escaping the truth. In this country, we value some more than others, and black and brown bodies rank significantly lower on the societal priority list than white bodies. Listing every case of injustice occurring in the whisper of time between the murders of Trayvon Martin and Jordan Davis would be impossible because of the sheer volume. The media and much of our population shrugs off the violence and injustice because of the volume rather than in spite of it. This is inexcusably backwards. Color of Change has a new campaign to address the disregard, the ease with which anyone who is able can turn away. Their action tab proclaims, Black Lives Matter. The current target is the stand your ground or shoot first laws murderers like Michael Dunn can legally cower behind. Visit colorofchange.org slash campaign and take a stand against the laws that excuse violence against people of color while providing no equal protection for domestic violence survivors like Marissa Alexander, who is now facing 60 years in prison for firing a warning shot that injured no one and may have saved her life. Rumors out of Florida say that lawmakers want to expand Stand Your Ground laws this legislative session, so your signatures and emails are especially important right now. Click the Color of Change link in the segment notes to send these words to your representatives. It's time to end so-called Stand Your Ground laws and other such laws that undermine public safety, senselessly put people at risk, and enable the kind of tragedy we've witnessed in the cases of Trayvon Martin and Jordan Davis. I'm calling on you to take leadership and undo these dangerous laws now. If you find you can still compartmentalize and distance yourself from the injustice after the stories in this episode, I encourage you to read the measured, moving words of Tanahasi Coates in The Atlantic and Michael Denzel Smith in The Nation, written in the weeks following Jordan Davis's murder. From Coates' piece, Black Boy Interrupted, quote, Some are given more days than others, and I think of dying at 17, in my loudness, in my vanity, which is to say, in my human youth, and I tremble. I was barely anything. I understood barely anything. When Michael Dunn killed Jordan Davis, he obliterated a time stream, devastated an open range of changes. And somewhere on that American journey, someone thought this was justice. Someone believed in the voodoo of shotguns and teleportation. Michael Dunn killed a boy and, too, robbed a man of his chance to be. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? Now, there's a guy that uh, HLM keeps bringing on to defend people like George Zimmerman and uh, and 
uh, Dunn, who just did the shooting in the loud music case, right? And uh, he's uh, often saying about how uh, blacks are uh, aggressive. In the Michael Dunn case, he said, look, even if these blacks didn't have a weapon, you've got to remember that uh, if you're a young black man, you're more prone to violence. So, so what? what? That's unbelievable. So like, oh, they had it coming because they, they were young black men. It was a fair assumption of, uh, of Dunn to think that, well, if they're black and they're young, I should shoot them before they do anything. What an outrageous guy. Why would you bring that guy back half a dozen times, right? Well, in the Zimmerman case, at least they had some rationale. They said that he was a fellow neighborhood watch volunteer and he was a friend of Zimmerman. And of course, in the Zimmerman case, uh, he uh, would constantly refer to uh, Trayvon Martin as a hoodlum unsurprising given who he is, which I'm about to explain to you. And he kept saying in the Dunn case that Davis, the kid who got shot, well, was clearly uh, the provoker, which is ridiculous. He didn't have a weapon, etc. I guess his music provoked his own murder. That's his outrageous claim. So who is this uh, taffy character who's defending Dunn and Zimmerman? Well, I've said in the past on the show that if you defend these guys, now, now, Zimmerman's a little different, actually, to be specific. If you defend Dunn, I said that you were a horrible individual. Well, it turns out I was right. He is a horrible individual. Uh, he is a guy who has said unbelievably racist things before. In fact, on air, Frank Taffy once said, you know, white racism is not America's biggest problem. I feel the biggest problem is education. There's a distinct gap between graduation rate of African Americans versus whites or Latinos in the country. And this was simply a matter of loud music, a man asking them to turn it down, and they did not oblige, and then it escalated. So, now this is not among the atrocious quotes, but look at that quote, where he says, no, it's not Dunn's fault for shooting at him ten times. It's their fault for being uneducated. How do you know they're uneducated? Well, they're black. He said, I assume they're uneducated. And they had it coming because they played, their uneducated uh, folks uh, played the music too loud, thereby leaving the white man no option but to murder them. Okay. If you're not convinced yet, oh, I got more for you. Now, in the past, Frank uh, Taffy, in his Stand Our Ground podcast, which is basically a white supremacist podcast, had said, uh, I always say, this is about Nicole Brown and how all white women dating black guys should get the same fate. I always say, you lie down with dogs, you're going to get fleas, especially if they're black dogs. <sighs> okay. Now, we're not done with Frank Daffy yet. So Mother Jones ran this article about all the outrageous things that he has said, uh, and Nancy Grace had him back on, and now finally did a good job of challenging him on the outrageous things that he said. Get a load of his lies, and then we'll show you actual audio from Frank Taffy and show you what he, in fact, did say. Watch. Frank Taffy, you have adamantly defended George Zimmerman, and you have steadfastly defended Michael Dunn, and I'm I, I wondering why you were so, you were hanging in there so staunchly and it has recently, very recently, come to my attention about some very disturbing comments on your Twitter feed. Uh, out to the control room, what was the comment we wanted to ask Frank about? The only time a black life is validated is when a white person kills them. End quote. No, right. it's not true. And I have a pending lawsuit against Mother Jones, by the way. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, there's also... Yeah your alleged response to them. What's the response from the control room, please? Quote, that minority group, they don't do anything productive for this country except for the NBA. 
And if it wasn't for the NBA, Joe, like I always say, our country would have the world's tallest garbage men. Thank God for the NBA. End quote. That's not my Twitter account. I've already defended myself on that. Because, Taffy, that is so That's insightful. horrible. And that's horrible. That's not my Twitter account. So that, that's sometime from years back. Someone hacked into my account. So thank you for letting me get it out there. Did they hack into your account, or that's not your Twitter account? Huh, that's interesting. Now the reality is, those things were actually not tweets originally. They were audio from his podcast, and we have that audio. Oops. Here's Frank Taffy in his own words. We're sick and tired of this bullshit, this country where one minority group dominates and dictates what the majority is supposed to be doing. I don't think that's the way it works. And that minority group, they don't do anything productive for this country. Well, look, I'm not going to say that they're, they're controlling Except for us. the NBA. And if it wasn't for the NBA, Joe, like I always say, our country would have the world's tallest garbage men. Okay? Thank God for the NBA. Did someone hack into your mouth and make you say those things? So, gee, I wonder who defends Michael Dunn. What did I tell you? It's exactly guys like this that defend Michael Dunn. And by the way, HLN, you don't need balance in every case. You don't need someone to say Charles Manson is a good guy if you're going to have somebody on to say Charles Manson is a bad guy. You don't need somebody to come on and make Michael Dunn's or George Zimmerman's case. Now look, there's sometimes a case to be made. The Zimmerman case was very hard to prove in a lot of ways inside the courtroom. I get that. I get the controversy around that. I didn't agree with the decision, but I understand it. Michael Dunn is an open and shut case. He was firing at the kids as they were trying to drive away. What part of that is stand your ground or self-defense? Right? You don't need a Michael Dunn guy for nonsense balance. And who are you going to get to defend him? There's only guys like this who always say, it's not about race. It's not about race. No, 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 no. It's just that, you know, uh, he was concerned about protecting himself and his fiance. All right, it's not about race. Here's from, more from Taffy. Well, it goes back to the premise that, uh, you know, I once said that the only time that a black life is validated is when a white person kills him. Okay? That, other than that, you know, we, we're just, we're part, of the, we're part of the groove, man. You know, it's okay to off 12 of us. And, you know, nobody cares, you know, but I guarantee you that if I stormed into the local KFC with the AR-15 and offed about 12 of them, you know, I don't think I'd make it out the front door. No, 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 no. It's never about race. Of course not. If you're still not convinced, well, boy, you're thick-headed. <laughs> okay, but I'll give you one more anyway. They had a debate on this brilliant podcast about whether Oprah was the N-word. The person arguing that she is, is Frank Taffy. Listen. Hey, welcome. This is Frank Taffy to episode eight, I believe, of Standing Our Ground. I'm Frank Taffy, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm doing good. I'm actually in the parking lot uh, of the KFC in beautiful downtown Sanford. I figured it'd be very apropos. I don't know. Would, would Oprah Winfrey qualify as a nigger to you? To me, she wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think she is. Oh, Frank, you go first, then. Yeah, she's a nigger because she keeps spewing out all that bullshit. She goes over to Switzerland and she says that uh, the lady didn't want to show her a handbag because she thought, you know, that she couldn't afford it. And she she keeps just doing what she's doing. She keeps stirring the pot 
She keeps trying to promote her boy Obama. You know, Obama could do no wrong. You know, it's birds of a feather. They flock together and stick together. And to me, she's a nigger. Oprah Winfrey's a nigger. Oh, not she's at a all. nigger. Not, she's a nigger. Not at all. Yeah, it's funny about Oprah. It's white women that made her rich, isn't it? It wasn't the black people. Yeah. Go think about that shit. Yeah. Perhaps HLN and all other TV shows that have this despicable clown on should think about that shit. All right. So, by the way, one more thing about Frank Taffy. You know how he calls black people criminals all the time? You heard it for yourself there. They're always shooting people up, etc. They're thugs. Frank Daffy has been arrested or faced criminal char charges at least a dozen times, including drunk driving, stalking, domestic violence, child abuse. And the networks make no mention of his criminal record or white separatist ties before that last appearance up with Nancy Grace. Who's the thug? Good afternoon, Jay. This is uh, Professor Rambo from Georgia, man. I'm just calling in about the, uh, the episode about racism. I want to say you did a great job at kind of, um, you know, hitting all the areas of racism. I think a, a big problem that a lot of people see and a big problem what a lot of people do is they just focus on what I call like the media sensationalism of racism. Like everybody talks about the Michael Dunn's, everybody talks about the George Zimmerman's, everybody talks about the Paula Dean. But they don't want to talk about the prison industrial complex. They don't want to talk about the war on drugs. They don't want to talk about how racism is, you know, how it's structurally set up in a certain way to where it, it appears as, you know, business as usual, but it just has that real murky racial undertone. So, um, you know, I just want to give you a shout out. And you know, I, I sometimes give you, you know, people a hard time when I say, oh, you know, this this white man, this white lady talking about racism. What do they know about racism? You know, I'm a black man. What are you going to teach me about racism? But um, this one says, you know, you do a great job at uh, addressing the issue. So, um, you know, much respect to that. And um, I guess as a final thought, you know, we just need to kind of look at racism as, a larger, you know, a larger picture. I just think a lot of people just want to point out a, a few people, a few instances as racism. But, you know, we need to look at, you know, we need to look at the, the bigger picture, whether it is banking practices or whether it is college admissions or, you know, how people get hired from a job or something like that. So, um, you know, appreciate what you do, man. Keep up the good work. Hi, Jay. This is Mara from Pittsburgh. I just finished listening to the latest episode, and uh, I thought that the clip from Trisha Rose's keynote address would be really great for those listeners from, I don't know, months months and months back who uh, don't understand white privilege and feel like they're being, quote, unquote, beaten up for being a white guy. In particular, I thought her statement at the end about what to say to the person who says, it wasn't me, why should I be made to feel bad, was really apropos of that. Uh, great episode, love the show, thanks for everything. 
Hi, Jay. It's Zex from San Francisco again, and I just wanted to call and say that um, I really, really like your um, color association with explaining gender and explaining those of us that are gender queer or gender fluid and not male or female. You know, we might as well be talking about getting rid of the color green. You know, it's really just a combination of blue and yellow. So why don't we, hey, it's 51% blue, just call it blue. Why do we have to complicate things with a whole extra word? It's just blue or yellow, call it one or the other and move on. It was a really interesting analogy, I guess that's what that's called. And um, I think that I'm gonna actually use that when I try to explain my gender identity, my family. Oh, thank you. I, I, I just wanted to call in and say that that was a very interesting perspective. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So a really interesting thing happened to me on the way to this commentary today, and it's, it's a multi-part story, but I will, I'll start with what I intended to start with. So today I wanted to tell you guys about an article called Four Ways to Push Back Against Your Privilege. This is an article I read about a week, maybe a week and a half ago. It was published at the beginning of February, and it sounded very much to me like the next logical step in the discussion of privilege. You know, on this show, there's been a lot of talk about the existence of privilege, what it is, how it manifests, and the effects of, of it. And this article basically you know, takes that to the next level saying that acknowledging your privilege is not enough. Um, that's kind of what we've been doing for a long time. But the next step is to figure out ways to actively push back against that privilege to try to sort of correct the unjust imbalance. And I thought, great, perfect. Uh, I love the article, love the suggestions that the author gives. Uh, I want to talk about that in today's show. So I went and I read through it. And as I read through it, I, uh, I I had a very interesting revelation. And so before I get to that revelation, uh, uh, let me remind you about, uh, just in the previous episode, this caller that called in and my response. Matt in Nagani, Michigan here. I really uh, am more comfortable defining myself as queer than as straight. Even though I've, you know, I've never kissed a guy, I've never had sex with a guy, um, I'm, by most definitions, a pretty conventional straight white dude. But I'm more comfortable with the label queer than I am with the label straight because of um, the political implications uh, of that uh, tradition. And then this is how I responded. Trying to self-identify as queer when self-admittedly not experiencing the world as queer and not having society perceive you as queer is sort of, to put it overly dramatically, a dangerous game you're playing. And since today's episode is all about race, I'll, I'll, I'll draw a comparison to race and, and say that um, you know even people of color who are in every way absolutely people of color, but if they have sort of dramatically light skin and are perceived by society as white or, or are often misidentified as white, they have a different lived experience than a person of color with very dark skin. And the identity politics uh, between those two types of people referring to this themselves as people of color gets let's just say complicated. And it doesn't mean that either is less of a person of color than the other, but they do have different lived experiences. And so the labeling just gets 
messy and people's opinions about that get really messy really quickly. And so, you know, to try to identify as queer without living, uh, you know, a, a queer experience is just something you probably don't want to do. So that's what I said in the previous episode, and the first bit about assuming identities that you haven't, you know, earned through your lived experience is something that I actually got from a listener who called in. This conversation actually already happened not that long ago. One caller called in saying that he thought that uh, straight allies were more, quote-unquote, queer than closeted gay guys who are not on board with, you know, the whole movement. And another caller responded saying, uh, you know— Hold off on that. That's not really how it works. Be careful about that. Straight allies are great. You know, we love them. But to say you're queer is just, it, it's, assu it's assuming an identity that it doesn't quite fit. So, you know, uh, he was basically saying, yeah, I, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And the second bit about comparing it to people of color and, you know, with different skin tones and, and how their skin tones affect their lived experience that I know came from an article I read recently. I didn't really know where, but I just thought like, oh, you know, I, I just read this thing recently. I, it was a thing I kind of knew, but it was fresh in my mind because I had read it. I thought, oh, perfect. Like that makes for a great comparison to this issue. So I'll use that comparison. Now, before I tell you about this, uh, this article, and you might see where I'm going at this point, I want to tell you that I have also become aware recently, uh, not with a lot of detail, but just sort of the general gist of the fact that it seems to be a trend that people of color uh, who write and speak on issues of you know race or feminism and things like this sort of tend to get their work stolen a lot, you know. Um, you know, as we know, the, the media landscape is a little skewed towards the privileged. People with existing privilege tend to get larger megaphones than uh, those in oppressed groups. But people with those sort of privileged megaphones seem to sometimes take from the, uh, you know, the oppressed people, take their opinions and co-opt them as their own. And uh, so it it was really uncomfortable to reread this article that I you know the four ways to push back against your privilege when I came to point number four. Now just see if this sounds familiar to you. Number four: Be careful what identities you claim. If you're a cis dude who is only into women, but you call yourself queer because all your friends are queer, and plus you kissed a guy once, and also you feel more politically aligned with queer folks, rethink that. Consider how your privilege and sense of entitlement gives you access to claim identities even when your lived experience doesn't support it. The same goes for white presenting people who claim person of color, but by their own admission don't experience oppression based on race. Just consider what it means to claim that, and then to argue about its validity with people who do experience racism in their daily lives, and who don't have the access to the kind of choices around that that you have. I'm not saying that you're white, or that you should call yourself that, I'm only questioning use of the term person of color. Think about what it means to claim a marginalized identity when you don't have a marginalized experience. <laughs> So I read that, and I thought, oh my god, I completely ripped off basically exactly what this person is saying without crediting them, and I have no proof other than to say 
I promise I didn't realize that that was happening, and I am correcting the issue now. So uh, the author of this article is Mia McKenzie. She's an award-winning writer and creator of the website where I saw this article, blackgirldangerous.org. So, you know, all I can do is correct the record and point out that uh, this is a thing that happens a lot. Some, I'm sure sometimes it happens on purpose and sometimes it ha- happens on accident. This is one of those times it happens on accident. And so as we get into the discussion of pushing back against privilege, uh, the way I am doing that right now is by running as far away as fast as I can from the idea that I actually stole this person's intellectual property without properly crediting them. Uh, I, I, although if I was accused of that you know, between the last episode and this one, it would be a totally valid argument. I channeled that person in, in a way that like I can't believe I didn't realize it was happening, uh, but now the record has been corrected. So with that behind us, uh, basically what I wanted to say is, can we start a conversation about ways to push back against privilege? Uh, Mia McKenzie in her article gives a few suggestions. Uh, number one, relinquish power when possible. She gives an example of, you know, a, a, a person, you know, a white person who is maybe a boss and is making decisions to sort of actively give up some decision-making power and, you know, take input from people of color around you to help spread the privilege a little bit, help give, you know, those from oppressed groups more input. Um, There's another example she gave, uh, just don't go. She says, if you recognize that you have access to something partly because of your privilege, then opt out of it. Just don't go to it. You know, if, if you're an able-bodied person and there's a retreat that you want to go to, but it's not wheelchair accessible, then, and, you know, and the organizers don't want to make accommodations, then don't go. Don't support things that are dependent on your privilege. Uh, number three is shut up. <laughs> this one means, uh, you know, if you're a person with a lot of privilege, you know, maybe take a step back and let other people talk. Uh, you know, you may agree with what they're saying, but you know, you don't always have to be the one making the point. Um, she says, you know, I'm talking about chiming in, taking up space, adding your two cents, playing devil's advocate, etc. Because one, no one asked you. And two, the subject matter is outside your realm of experience. And three, Anything you say is just going to cause more harm because of your voice in and of itself is a reminder that you always get to have a voice and that voice usually drowns out the voices of others. And then number number four is the one I already read about be careful what identities you claim. So I would love to hear any examples anyone has from their own lives, ways that you can push back against privilege in your own life or not. If you have just any thoughts on, you know, what experiences do you have, if you, you know, whatever privilege you experience, how can you take active actions to push back against that? Uh, call it in. The number again, 202-999-3991. Uh, but that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always 
be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And Stories and forget who it is with